0: Minus 15.
1: Respect all, fear none.
0: Into the upper deck.
2: Intensity is not a perfume. Oh my
0: goodness. Five, four, three, two, one.
3: And welcome in to the Mass and All Access podcast. Another special bonus episode on this Thursday. Another draft episode for you guys because Tim Leonard, Brendan Mortensen. Brendan, we are 10 days away from the MLB draft now. It's hard to keep track. Yeah, it's July 17th, so depending on when you're listening, we're getting closer and closer. It is a great time to be an Orioles fan right now. The team is winning. They're coming off a sweep. Six prospects in the top 100, despite the fact that Adley Rutschman has graduated from the prospect rankings on MLB Pipeline, and they've got the number one draft pick coming up in 10 days, and also a heap of other draft picks after that as well.
2: Yeah, and not just the guys in the top 100, but you now have two top five prospects, even though Adley Rutschman just graduated, he was the number one overall prospect in all of baseball But now Gunnar Henderson moves up to the fifth overall prospect in baseball according to the MLB Pipeline. Grayson Rodriguez is number four. And it's kind of unfortunate that Adley had to graduate when he did because if the updated rankings came out, you could have had Adley number one, Grayson number four, and Gunnar Henderson number five. Or right. six, or, or whatever, however you want to rank it.
3: And Gunnar Henderson is going to be in the Futures game as well, which yep. is very exciting news. We found out about that today. The other thing is D.L. Hall just casually threw 14 strikeouts yesterday. And 98
2: <laughs> pitches. Yes,
3: which, which is, is great.
2: For those keeping track of when D.L. Hall might make his Major League debut, the fact that he threw 98 pitches is very significant.
3: For sure. It's really exciting because when you think about they still have six in the top 100. Jordan Westberg is 96, so... Depends on kind of how the draft rankings shake out, whether he will stay in the top 100. But you'd figure for sure the number one draft pick will be at least a top 100 prospect. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. I mean, we know that. So that's another guy. And then Heston Kerstad is hitting great. He's on a 15-game on base streak right now. Maybe he works his way back into the top 100. You've also got Kobe Mayo is hitting the ball great. So we could be looking at, despite the fact that Adley Rutschman is no longer considered a prospect. We could be looking at seven or eight prospects by the end of the year inside the top 100 on MLB Pipeline.
2: Yeah, and it's an incredibly deep farm system as well. Justin on Facebook pointing out that Basayo is playing well, a recent international signing, Samuel Basayo. So really up and down this farm system, a lot of exciting prospects.
3: For sure. So the MLB draft is coming up, and we've done a couple podcasts so far sort of detailing who the Orioles could take at the number one overall pick. If you missed any of them, go back and check them out, because a couple weeks ago, me and you talked in-depth on five guys, the top five guys by consensus in these mock drafts that the Orioles might be picking from, and Mike Elias said at one point that he is down to five or six guys, and they've narrowed their list to that point. Well, when we did that podcast a couple weeks ago, we did not talk much about Cam Collier, who is rising up draft boards recently, And I feel like we have to talk about him because of the way that he hit at the Cape Cod Baseball League. Wasn't spectacular, but he's a young guy that is continuing to, you know, rise into the top five, top three conversation, it seems like now.
2: Yeah, Mike Elias said that the Orioles had pretty much narrowed down their selections to five or six guys. And you mentioned the podcast we had where we broke down the top five. Cam Collier is probably the or six In this scenario, he might be that sixth guy working his way into the group. There's been some recent buzz around, you know, draft Twitter, whatever you want to call it, that Cam Collier might be working his way even into the top three of draft prospects and draft picks because the upside is so high and because of the fact that you would probably be able to get him pretty underslot within the first three picks. He is somebody who, because he is so young and so just raw in terms of his talent, Maybe it's worth taking a swing on him in the top three or five picks, knowing that the potential is so high, and if you have enough confidence in your coaching staff throughout the minor league levels, enough confidence in your player development system, you could be getting a player who is top three in this draft talent-wise, but the risk with how young he is and just how raw he is, is something you have to consider if you're picking him that high.
3: He is 17 years old, and he's not turning 18 until November. So he's by far the youngest draft prospect up this high in the draft. Yes, 17
2: 17 and 7 months at the time of the draft.
3: Right, which is crazy. And the background on him is he was committed to Louisville as a freshman in high school, played high school ball in Georgia. After his sophomore year of high school, he decided, I'm going to go the JUCO route, got his GED, went to Chipola Junior College this past year, which is, year in and year out, the best junior college program in the nation, pretty much. And he said, I'm going to go that route. We've seen Bryce Harper do that. Not comparing him to Bryce Harper, but that's one player who did it successfully. And instead of being a 2023 draft guy, he reclassified to 2022, and he hit great at Chipola. Hit in, I think it was 330 or so, hit eight home runs, showed some power, which is really impressive because... He's 17 and doing that against guys that are pitching two to three years older than him. So from that point, he kind of went from late first to, I'd say, middle of the first. Then he went to the Cape Cod Baseball League, which that's absurd, a 17-year-old to join the Cape Cod League. He only played nine games. He went five for 23, five singles in nine games over that stretch. So that's a two seventeen average. It wasn't like he wowed. But again, he's 17 at the Cape Cod League, swinging with a wooden bat against guys that are 22, 23, 24 and pitching against him.
2: Right. And for non-baseball nerds who don't know too much about the Cape Cod Baseball League, that's essentially where you're seeing a lot of top college players over the summer. So if you're at a top SEC program and you want to play summer ball somewhere, you're probably going to play in the Cape Cod Baseball League. We've seen a lot of top five, top 10 draft picks go through that league, and it's a good evalu- evaluation period over that stretch because that's where you're facing other top competition. Not that these college guys aren't facing good competition day in and day out at that level, but at the Cape Cod Baseball League, it's not like an all-star league, but it's where a lot of the better players from the college ranks go. So to see Cam Collier there as a 17-year-old even having an average over 200 yeah. is really impressive for facing college pitchers that are not only a lot older than him, but have a ton more experience against a lot better competition than Collier has had.
3: Yeah. He's always been a high pedigree guy, third baseman who is six two and he could be growing even more because again, he is 17 years old, but going this route is interesting. I think it was a smart decision on his part and his team's part to, go to the Cape Cod Baseball League. Because if anything, that's going to increase your stock. It's really not going to hurt it. Because if he struggles, you just say, oh, well, he's 17 going against the best college pitchers that are 22-23. And he's, you know, expected to not do great. But he did do pretty well. He held his own. Again, it was just nine games, five for 23, 217 average, no extra base hit. So his OPS was 596 at the Cape League in a nine-game small sample size. He had six strikeouts, six walks in nine games. It's not outstanding, but I think that has taken him from middle of the first, maybe like 12th on some boards, to, okay, maybe he's worthy of a top five, top three pick. Maybe he's a guy you look at if you're thinking under slot in one of the top five ranges.
2: Right, and as of right now, the MLB Pipeline draft rankings has him at eighth, which is a a solid ranking, but you can look around... Other outlets that are evaluating draft prospects. Keith Law of the Athletic has Collier ranked as his second overall prospect in the draft behind only Drew Jones. So that's over a lot of top talents that we've already talked about. Jackson Holiday, Tamar Tamar Johnson, excuse mm-hmm. me, Elijah Green, he is ahead of those guys in the prospect rankings. And I think it's important to point out too that if Cam Collier didn't reclassify and stays in the 2023 MOB draft, we're probably talking about a top five pick there as yeah. well.
3: Yeah, for sure. And I think at this point, his bat is really what's drawing scouts to him, which it's what a lot of these guys are. And, and it seems like that's been kind of why the, the draft class or why you're up there in the top 10 is because He's got an outstanding bat to ball skills. He's got an outstanding swing speed, advanced approach to the plate. He checks all those boxes. Again, for a 17 year old to go to Chipola, he hit 333. He had eight homers. His OPS was 956 at Chipola against good competition there. I'm not saying it's SEC, but it's still. At 17 to do that, he definitely turned some heads, and that's way advanced and way ahead of the curve to be putting up those type of numbers.
2: Yeah, we mentioned Gunnar Henderson off the top of the show and the fact that he is now the number five prospect in all of baseball. One of the things that has been consistently so impressive about Gunnar Henderson is the fact that he's had to punch above his weight class. He is always facing players that are older than him. Gunnar Henderson has still yet to face a pitcher in the triple a ranks that is younger than him right (laughs) so consistently he is playing playing against older competition and he's playing really well that's what we're seeing from cam collier right now as well he's playing older competition at the juco level at one of the best juco programs and excelling right and when you get into the
3: conversation of okay should the orioles go under slot who will they take if they go under slot? Brooks Lee has been a popular name, right? When when you factor in, okay, maybe they'll go under slot. He's a college bat. I feel like that's died down a little bit recently, and Brooks Lee maybe hasn't been tied to the Orioles as much recently to the point where now I think it would be kind of a surprise if Brooks Lee was taken number one. But the difference to me in taking a Brooks Lee under slot and taking a Cam Collier under slot is Cam Collier's upside is maybe the second best in this draft class. Yeah. It might be just behind Elijah Green, and I would put it right there with Drew Jones and Jackson Holiday and guys like that. So not to say Brooksley might not be a successful MLB player. I think we both agree he probably will be, right. but his ceiling isn't quite as appealing maybe as some of the other prospects that are up there. Collier is an underslot player that also still has a really high ceiling, and that's why I think we probably will see one team – there's been some talk of the Pirates at number four, like him, maybe. Maybe they'll be the team that reaches for him. I don't know if it'll be the Orioles, but you can see why a team would reach for a guy that is 17 and has a really high ceiling and has an advanced approach to the plate and was putting up that good of numbers across different levels against tougher competition.
2: Right. Brooks Lee, a, a lot of draft experts seem to think that his ceiling is probably a, a multiple-time all-star, yeah, like which a is player. still a right. very good player. But in Brooks Lee, you are more than likely not getting a superstar. If Cam Collier reaches his full potential, you could be getting a superstar. And when we've looked at past Orioles draft picks, if you want to look at some of the younger guys that they've taken over slot, again, we keep bringing up Gunnar Henderson, yeah. but a very similar scenario where it was a high school bat, had an advanced approach at the plate, but the difference is that the Orioles took him much later. They didn't take him until the 30s. So... Maybe the Orioles don't want to shoot for the underslot potential high school guy at number one overall, but a lot of the guys at the top of this draft are high school bats. So you have to do some of that kind of far-reaching extrapolation with their potential and their tools and all that. So that's kind of the evaluation process anyway. You're kind of picking between high school bats to begin with. So what's adding Cam Collier to the mix?
3: I do think, I want to be clear it would be a pretty big shock to me if Cam Collier was the number one pick. I still, if I had to guess right now, would say that he is that six guy like you were talking about maybe, and when Mike Elias brought up the five, which, again, Mike Elias can say that, and he also could still be looking at eight or nine guys. That doesn't mean it's gospel that just because he said five to six guys, they're only looking at five to six guys. But if we take him at his word there, I would be be surprised that at that point Collier was – Firmly in the top five for them. I think he's worthy of looking at for sure, and I'm sure they've done their due diligence on him. But to me, the reason why I say I'd still be surprised if the Orioles went this route is because he's a risky guy to take at number one. And that hasn't really scared off Michael Elias in the past. But when you think about who have they gone after since Michael Elias has come to the Orioles it has been older hitters, college bats that have some sense of safety to the pick and right. some sense of a floor that is pretty high. Even Adley Rutschman, last time they had the number one overall pick, it was an easier pick, maybe you could say, and and they, they took the pick that everyone would have taken. But also, just based on Adley had done it for a power at the college level, there's more information when a kid goes to college. It's easier to probably scout a college bat, you can make an argument. So... Well, Michael Elias has taken high picks on high school bats in the past. This would feel like a riskier option than what they would probably like to take at number one.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think when you look at some of the top talent in this draft, there are a lot of picks that are honestly pretty safe. I mean, Drew Jones has a ton of potential, but I think he is safe just because you know what the floor is with his running ability, with his defense you know that you're getting a really good quality defensive center fielder. I don't think at he's the very least.
3: as safe as Adley was at number no. one, but I do think he's, because like you said, the glove is so advanced. you right. think that he will stick around in the
2: league for a very long time, just based on that. But even other guys in the top of the draft as well, I think Elijah Green, even though we've talked about maybe he's a little boomer bust, he's still relatively safe because of the defense. Again, he's mm-hmm. incredibly athletic. He plays a very good defensive center field. The bat, who knows if that comes around with Elijah Green, but he's still relatively safe. Tamar Johnson, we know the bat-to-ball skills are fantastic. That seems like a player that's just going to hit at every single level. He feels pretty safe. Jackson Holiday has good all-around skills. You can go through the top of this draft. Everybody has a pretty solid floor, whereas for Cam Collier, you look at his floor and you look at the tools that you know are going to translate, and you say, okay, the bat-to-ball skills – are good. Are they Tamar Johnson level? Probably not. And then he has solid arm strength at third base, but the fielding mechanics aren't incredibly smooth. So you have the tools there, but how safe is Cam Collier? Yeah. Not very.
3: He's not as safe as a Colden Cowser, even, no. I would say. And that's where, you know, you say, okay, they went, under slot last year with Colton Cow, So they went under slot the year before that, Heston Kerstab. But those were college guys. Those were refined bats more. And this is a very advanced, very appealing bat that we're talking about here with Cam Collier. And by the way, his defense, he was a former pitcher. He actually pitched some in relief for Chipola College and did pretty well, and he throws low 90s fastball. So yeah, his fastball arm, got
2: up to 95.
3: Yeah, so his arm is a 60 grade, depending on where you look. Most have it as a 60 grade. His hit grade 60, everything else is kind of a 50 for him. So the defense, he could stick at third base. He also maybe could be a corner outfield type of guy. The Really the only question mark with will he stick at third base is kind of like the conversation you have with a Kobe Mayo where how much is he going to grow and will he outgrow the position? He's right. already 6'2". He's already maybe not as quick laterally as an ideal third baseman would be. Not saying he's not quick, but... For a third baseman, usually they're a little bit shorter than 6'2", and he could grow even
2: more because he's 17 years old. Yeah, I don't think he's ever going to be a great defensive third baseman. I look at a guy like Rafael Devers yeah. in Boston. I don't think he's going to be the hitter that Rafael Devers <laughs> is, but with Devers, you live with the defense at third. It's improved because you just you kind of have to put him somewhere because his bat is so good that you need him in the lineup. The arm strength is solid for Devers. The fielding mechanics aren't fantastic, but because the arm strength is good, you put him at third and you just kind of work with him there. That's kind of what I see with Cam Collier.
3: Yeah. Another lefty bat Devers. This is a lefty bat, which I think adds to the appeal a little bit with him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You definitely see a lot of good things when scouts are talking about his swing, how fluid it is, how loose it is, how his wrists are very loose. He checks all those boxes. So again, it's kind of like Tamar Johnson, even a Brooks Lee, who's a hitter that is very accomplished at all levels so far. There's a lot of strong hitters at the top of this draft. Drew Jones maybe isn't the guy that jumps to the front of the page in terms of hit tool at the top of the draft, which is kind of interesting from an Orioles perspective to see how they evaluate Drew Jones compared to seeing a lot of other really good hitters at the top of this draft because they've been more inclined to go hit first than glove first so far from what we've seen.
2: Yeah, and with Collier, it's definitely a hit first. And like you said, the fact that he is a left-handed, power-hitting corner infielder is pretty intriguing at the top of the draft. The fact that he's a third baseman and not a first baseman also helps him out a ton, even though he is a bat-first Defense isn't there as much, kind of guy. The fact that most experts think he will be able to stick at third base is huge.
3: Now, he would be an underslot selection if the Orioles took him, we'd have to guess. And I think it's noteworthy that the Pirates seem to be interested in him at four because when you're factoring in, okay, should we go underslot, should we not, you're trying to figure out how much leverage do we have when we're negotiating a contract with that specific player. For example, Drew Jones right now is consensus best player. He probably won't get the full slot value because hardly anyone ever gets the full slot value at number one, but he will cost the most out of all the guys. One, because he's the consensus best player, but also I think one thing to consider when you're evaluating Drew Jones is it seems like, now these are reports and some of it might be speculation, but it seems like the Diamondbacks at number two would happily take Drew Jones. You'd have to imagine. If he went to number two. So it's not like Drew Jones' agent is thinking, I want him to sign number one because if not, he's going to slip to four or five, which I think is a part of the conversation here when you're trying to figure out who is the best under-slot candidate. When Mike Elias was in a similar position in 2012 with the Astros and he took Carlos Correa and Buxton was at the top of that draft, Buxton was considered probably the number one prospect in that draft. Some thought that... Correa would fall to maybe seven if he wasn't taken number one that year. And I think that allowed Michael Elias to maybe get him for a better deal and it increased his chances of landing him at number one for a better underslot deal. So that's why I bring up that Collier would be underslot, but also I could see the Pirates taking him at four. So it's not like he's one or seven or one or eight. He might right. be, but it's worth considering that other teams are interested in him in the top five range.
2: Oh, and it's funny that it's the Diamondbacks too, because we've seen this story before. Yes, the Orioles with the number five overall pick last year had Jordan Lawler on the board, who many thought would be the number two pick in this draft. The Orioles, of course, decide to draft Colton Cowser. The Diamondbacks sit there at number six and happily take a Jordan Lawler that falls into their lap because the Orioles decide to go underslot, So it's kind of funny that if this year the Orioles decide to go underslot once again, the Diamondbacks might be the benefactor of that and just be able to sit there and say, okay, we'll take whichever top prospect the Orioles don't feel like taking.
3: And the other thing that's sort of interesting comparing it to last year's draft, Khalil Watson was a name that I feel like sort of like Cam Collier rose a lot late in the process, and all of a sudden you were seeing mock drafts within the 10-day mark, kind of where we're at right now, where it was like, oh, he might go two or three, and then he ended up going 16. There was
2: speculation that he could go one. Right, yeah. So yeah.
3: he he's kind of like Cam Collier this year, and I say that to say that just because Cam Collier, a couple of people have tweeted, there is growing speculation inside the industry that he might be a top three guy, a top five guy now. Yeah. He might still go 14, 15. We, right. we don't necessarily know. This is at the point where there's stuff coming out that maybe teams want to get out that they don't necessarily feel about or that's not necessarily how they're feeling. So I think it is worth bringing him up, though, because he's another guy that is hit first and could be an underslot selection. And when we say underslot, there are a lot of pros to going underslot as well. A lot of people, I think, view it as you're going cheap, and I get that argument a little bit, but in the MLB draft where you cannot trade a draft pick, if you think that Cam Collier is not that far off from Drew Jones in terms of your prospect evaluation, if you have Drew Jones just a little bit ahead of another group of players, then it makes sense to go under slot and then have more money saved up for better players down the road. That's something you consider when you're in this position.
2: Yeah, it's important to clarify that in the MLB draft, it's not like the Orioles are using their own money. It's not like this is a free agency situation where you can sign a player to a specific contract, you're not signing a draft pick with your free agency. Money. Right. The Orioles go into this draft with a set allocated amount of funds. That amount of funds does not change whether you select Drew Jones, number one overall, or Cam Collier, number one overall. You use the money or you lose it. So if the Orioles select somebody like Cam Collier, that is just allowing them to spend more money on later draft picks, but it's all coming from the same pool that they are allocated at the beginning of the draft. Right. If they don't draft Drew Jones, that doesn't mean that the Orioles just don't want to spend money. They're they're going to spend it later in the draft. At some point, you have to spend that money because that's all you get.
3: Right. And I do think going under slot at number five is different than going under slot at number one. Absolutely. Just because... Number one, you have the most money in the entire draft pool to spend on. And also, like I said earlier, a lot of times the number one player does not go for full slot value. So you're already maybe getting a little extra money. But I say that, and look at what the Pirates did last year. They went under slot at number one so that they were able to get some pitching prospects they liked. Mostly, they were after, I think that's mainly why they did it, was to get some pitching prospects later on. And I think that's an interesting comparison because the Orioles are in a position where their farm system right now is littered with excellent hitters. And the pitching prospects, they do have the number four prospect in baseball, according to MLB Pipeline. That's a pitcher, Grayson Rodriguez. They have D.L. Hall, who had 14 strikeouts earlier this week. So they have two excellent pitching prospects. But even if those guys work out, they're at a point where they would like to see maybe the farm system balance out and they get more pitchers and maybe that's trading away some hitting prospects to get pitchers. There's many ways you can do it. But typically, we see a lot of pitchers late first round, early second round, that range be over slot guys. That's something to consider when you factor in that the Orioles have pick 33, they have pick 42, they'd like to add pitchers. Maybe they're targeting a pitcher back there, and that is a guy they are really keyed in on. And because of that, they're going to say, you know what, I'm a little more likely to go under slot so that we can get that pitcher and we have a better overall draft.
2: So, Tim, I tend to look at this first overall pick as going in one of two ways. The first way being the Orioles know that they are not going to be in this position again, hopefully, over the next few seasons. They are not going to have the opportunity to select a player of this caliber, so you go with the best overall talent on your board. Most people tend to think that's Drew Jones. Maybe it's Jackson Holiday. Maybe it's Elijah Green. That's one avenue that the Orioles could go. The second avenue, which I think also has a lot of weight to it, is that the Orioles have four picks in the top 67. If you recall the off-season move where the Orioles traded Cole Sulcer and Tanner Scott to the Marlins, a big part of that trade was getting the competitive balance round pick from the Marlins, which is number 67 overall. So the Orioles have four picks where if they go under slot number one overall, maybe it's Tamar Johnson, maybe it's Cam Collier, you could potentially get four top 40, top 50 talents with those picks. And is it worth passing up on a Drew Jones number one overall and instead going with a Tamar Johnson or a Cam Collier like we've talked about today in order to get four top 30, top 40, top 50 talents? and just continue to bolster the number one farm system in baseball.
3: And when Michael Elias says we're down to five or six guys right now, we think probably Tamar Johnson is one of those guys. And again, the conversation is not so much, okay, Drew Jones is the best player, so we're going to take him. I think the conversation they're having is, how much do we like Tamar Johnson compared to Drew Jones? Right. How much do we like Tamar Johnson compared to Jackson Holliday? Because... As I said earlier, Cam Collier's been linked a little bit to the Pirates at number four. Tamar Johnson, I've seen mocks have him seven, eight even, and seven seems like his floor because the Cubs seem to like him if he falls to that point. That's worth mentioning because if you're Tamar Johnson's agent, if you're Tamar Johnson, and you're trying to figure out how can I best maximize my value in the MLB draft, and you might fall to seven if you're not taking number one, or number two. I think the Diamondbacks seem to like him a little bit, but again, based on speculation right now, it seems like he could slip in the draft if he's not taken number one. So the Orioles could go to him and probably negotiate a pretty strong deal here that would be to their liking, maybe for a couple million dollars less than they would have to sign Drew Jones to. And again, some fans might say, oh, that's the cheap way about it, but if they view Drew Jones, who is not a surefire guy, I think we both really like Drew Jones, you and I, and what scouts say about him is all great, but when he went up against the showcase circuit and went up against stronger competition, he struggled to pull the ball and he struggled to hit at times. So like, there's things to, in Drew Jones's game that make him less of a slam dunk, high floor guy as an Adley Rutschman. So, again, I would like the Orioles to take Drew Jones. That would be the guy I think they should take. But if you view view Tamar Johnson as not that far off from Drew Jones, it's worth then considering a contract with Tamar Johnson.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, again, with Drew Jones, when he was in a lineup with a lot of other top draft prospects, he was hitting seventh or eighth. Mm -hmm. Something to consider there with Drew Jones. But let's talk about some of those later picks. You mentioned Tamar Johnson as a possibility with the number one overall pick if the Orioles go underslot, the Orioles have picks 33, 42, and 67. Those picks are not insignificant by any stretch. That's around the range where the Orioles have gotten Gunnar Henderson. They took Jordan Westberg, 30th overall. They took Kyle Stowers, 71st overall. And last year, they took Reed Trimble and John Rhodes around that range again, And those are your 21st and 20th ranked prospects in the farm system right now. So you can get a lot of valuable players in this later range. And if they do go under slot and select a Johnson or a Cam Collier at the top of the draft, we could be looking at a lot of talented players coming off the board for the O's with these three later picks.
3: Yeah, that is an underrated part about this whole thing. It's the fact that they have that competitive balance pick. They have five of the top 81 picks here in this draft. And I think... I would like to see them target some pitchers in that window. And then it gets into the conversation of, okay, are you talking over slot pitchers? Because it seems like when you look at mock drafts right now, when you look at that 33 range, 34, 35, it's just a lot of pitchers in, that are getting mocked in that range. And that's partially because... There's not a lot of top-end pitchers, and there's no reason for the Orioles to spend the number one pick on a pitcher because there's no pitcher that is worthy of that this year. That's just how the draft worked out. But there's a lot of pitchers who are considered very high ceiling but had Tommy John surgery recently. It seems like a lot of these guys, unfortunately, have had that, and they've fallen back. And now, like a Kamar Rocker, who we talked about on last week's podcast, is an option there maybe for the Orioles if he slips to 33 or if he's in that range that you say, all right, do we like him enough to jump up and, and maybe grab him with an overslot selection or something like that? Because to me, if you're the Orioles, again, you're evaluating where your farm system's at, and you got to be thinking, I'd like to go for a pitcher probably relatively early in this draft.
2: Yeah, that would kind of go against what we've seen Mike Elias do right. in recent drafts. So I think it would be really interesting to see the Orioles actually draft a pitcher relatively early. I mean, Carlos Tavera was the highest selected pitcher for the O's a season ago. Big, just like spin rate, stuff guy. And we've seen how much success he's had this year. We haven't really seen Michael Elias select a pitcher early.
3: Well, he- wait, but... To make the comparison before the Orioles, going back to that 2012 draft, Lance McCullers, over-slot guy yeah. in that range. So Same, again, type, of,
2: same type of pitcher. It's it,
3: almost like the Correa McCullers would be like Tamar Johnson, Kamar Rocker maybe this year. I, right. They're not you know, apples to apples, but in general, it's a way that they could go. Michael Elias has done it. He hasn't really done it with the Orioles, though, like you were saying.
2: Yeah, I mean, Lance McCullers, like I was, same kind of pitcher. I mean, yeah. incredible, like a stuff guy. He had great spin rates and was somebody that you could realistically take a swing on towards the back end of the first round or that competitive balance round. I look at somebody like Dylan Lesko, who was probably going to be the top pitcher off the board this year, gets hurt. Maybe you take a swing on him at 33. The injury concerns are there, obviously, but in terms of the stuff, I mean, that was a top 10, top 15 talent. You mentioned Kamar Rocker as well. That would be a slam dunk of a pick, I would think, at 33.
3: Right, and who knows if he drops to that point because recent mocks have him rising, if anything. It seems like his health records and everything have been a little bit more clarity there. He did have shoulder surgery last year. That's kind of been confirmed, and he's been pitching well for the Tri-City Valley Cats, but still, it seems like he's rising. You also don't have to go pitcher over slot, and like you said, Gunnar Henderson's an example of a great success story. One guy, Chase DeLauter, who is at James Madison, or recently finished up playing at James Madison, now is draft eligible, was a really highly sought-after guy going into the season, started out the season well, broke his foot, unfortunately, in April, kind of slipped down draft boards. He's, if anything, been sort of rising back the other way now, but he's someone that is now kind of in the 15 to 25 mock draft range, and that's a guy that maybe the Orioles say, we really like him, and we could walk out of this draft, this first round at least, with Tamar Johnson and DeLauder based on how we spend our money if we play that right.
2: Right, and look, it's it's harder for us to sit here and talk about guys that the Orioles could potentially be right. taking at number 33 solely because it's such a money thing with the MLB draft of how much you can sign a guy for, where you could potentially see a Chase DeLauder, who is maybe a top 15 talent in this draft, slip to number 33 because maybe people don't want to pay him because of the injury concern. Maybe talent just slips down the draft here for the Orioles, and if they do go under slot, they're able to take advantage of the fact that some other teams earlier on in the draft process don't want to take somebody over slot in the middle of the first round.
3: Right, and speaking of Chase Delauder, we're going to hear from his James Madison head coach, Marlon Eikenberry, in just a second here. I guess just to kind of put a bow on our portion of the podcast, we will be back next week, next Thursday, and that's amazing going to be our last one probably until the this MLB draft. draft was, really snuck up. I know. It's crazy. The Orioles have been too good for us to be like, oh, the draft is coming up and really focused right? on the draft, which is good problems to have, and it's exciting times, like I said. But we'll probably make more predictions next week. Right now, I'll just go on record again. I would say Tamar Johnson, number one, is my best educated guess. But that is also to say that I I think Drew Jones, Tamar, and Jackson Holliday are probably the three that, for me, have separated themselves. And the Brooks-Lee chatter seems to have died down. There was some Jacob Berry chatter originally. That's died down. I know we talked about Cam Collier He's rising up boards. Maybe we'll hear something, and we'll hear some more speculation in the coming days. We don't really know what the Orioles are going to do, but I think right now Elijah Green would surprise me. And really, I feel like it's those three names, one of those,
2: Holiday, Drew Jones, Tamar Johnson at number one, that I see the Orioles taking. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I put my money on Tamar Johnson if I have to put my money somewhere. I would say, if I'm making just kind of, out of 100 here, I would say... I'm calling back to a a birds game that Paul and I did where I had to put a specific (laughs) amount of birds on a specific scenario (laughs) happening. I would put... Oh, goodness. I would put 40 birds on Tamar Johnson. Okay. I would put 30 on Drew Jones, and I would put 30 on Jackson Holiday because I'm not confident in really any of those, but Tamar Johnson is a slight edge.
3: I think for me, if we want to really get into it, I would say 35 birds Tamar... 30 birds, Jackson Holiday, 25, Drew Jones. Did that equal 100? Who knows? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Who's to say?
3: Yeah. Well, anyway, I think I'm slightly Jackson ahead of Drew Jones, but yeah. it's very close. And then it's very close between Jackson and Tamar, slightly Tamar for me right now. But I think it's those three. And we I, don't I know I for sure, agree. but at this point, I feel like it's those three. So. Anyway, if they do go the underslot route, which we talked about a lot in this podcast, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going cheap because you could get a guy later on over-slot that you really like, and that's kind of the only way you can play it in the MLB draft because you can't trade draft picks if you want to go that route. So we talked about Chase DeLotter. Let's go deeper into his game before we get out of here. Paul Mancano. Got a chance to talk with the James Madison head coach, Marlon Eikenberry, earlier in the year. This was a couple months ago, but still a very relevant conversation because this is a guy that the Orioles could be targeting as an overslot over selection later on. So let's kick it to Paul with that interview from a couple months ago.
1: We're joined on Mass and All Access by James Madison head coach, Marlon Eikenberry. Coach, thanks so much for hopping on.
0: No, I appreciate you guys having me on. So
1: you're entering your seventh season and your second season head coach of Chase DeLauder, who is one of the top draft prospects in the country right now. We're going to talk about Chase and what he can do for you in the 2022 season. But you've only had 42 games with him so far because of COVID issues and things going around over the past two years. In those 42 games, however, what have you seen from Chase? And what kind of player is he for guys that haven't gotten to watch him play yet?
0: Well, his freshman year, he, he hit in the top of our lineup, but he also was our Sunday starter. So he played center field and, and, and hit in the top of the lineup. And then it was just easier for us to manage his workload with him starting and throwing three or four or five innings as a Sunday starter. You know, we originally recruited him as a pitcher, and, and hitting was kind of secondary. And then kind of hitting took off for him in the latter of his high school years and then into, into his freshman, sophomore year of, of college. But right now we're using him as a center fielder. He's going to hit the top of our lineup probably two, three, um, you know, and and pitch out of the bullpen for us right now.
1: How much workload do you expect to give him uh, out of the bullpen? I know that he's gotten a little over 20 innings so far through his first two uh, seasons with you guys, but do you expect him to be used in high leverage situations? Do you expect him to use him maybe once a week? What's your plan for him as a pitcher?
0: Well, you know, the other night he came in and closed and threw nine pitches, struck out two guys, and I think threw two balls. <laughs> so, um you know, if he does that, he'll be used as a closing role. I like him as a left-on-left matchup guy out, out of the bullpen late in the game. Uh Last year in extra innings games against um, William & Mary, we brought him in and he pitched, you know, three innings and got us the got us the win. And he hadn't pitched probably in over a month. Um, But he's always been throwing bullpens. He's always he's always been doing that. And and really, we've been a re- doing a really good job of just kind of managing his workload as a pitcher and a position player early on in his career. Now he's physical enough to where he can – he can handle it and, and do it. And uh, it, it's funny because he always talks, we always joke around with him, you know, we'll say, yeah, you're a pitcher first. And he just shakes his head. He's like, I'll only pitch when you need me, coach. So that's the kind of mindset he has. He likes to win, so he'll do whatever it takes to win.
1: Absolutely. Well, Baltimore has a history of using guys in both roles as well. So maybe that's in the future for him, but he is being looked at more as a center fielder and an outfielder, at least by uh, MLB scouts at this point. What kind of arsenal does he boast as a pitcher? However, because I do, I am curious as to if he has anything beyond a pretty good fastball, which I have seen that he can touch the the low nineties with that fastball. Does he have any secondary pitches?
0: Yeah, he throws a slider and a changeup, but he throws from a different arm slot. His arm slot's very unique. It's almost a straight line arm slot right out of the shoulder, and uh, almost kind of like a slinger type pitcher. But he doesn't really sling it. It's kind of a a high three quarter. Um, Slide though. He's always, but he does have a sweeping slider and a pretty good change. But his fastballs, you know, he'll run up there pretty good. Um, uh, scout day last year in the fall, he wanted a, he wanted to throw. He said he touched 95 a couple times on scout day. And I said, "Now nah, you're good. We'll see that in the spring. So hopefully he can do that. Awesome.
1: Well, I know he's got a great eye at the plate as well. Through the first two seasons, he's got more walks than he does strikeouts. How good is his plate discipline when he's in the batter's box? And, and do you think maybe that work as a pitcher has helped develop his eye?
0: I think he has got elite hand-eye coordination. Um, discipline of the strike zone is, is is very impressive. Last year with all the ups and downs we had, our inner squads were me calling balls and strikes from behind the middle of the field during the season because we didn't play many midweek games. And uh and so, you know, he would come back saying, Ike, that was two balls off the off the off the plate, you know, if I called a strike, I'd sure enough go look on video and sure enough it was two balls off the plate. And so I joked around about about this this preseason about how's my zone, you know, just kind of you know, messing with him a little bit. But, you know, that's one of the things that makes him such a unique player is that, you know, he does hit for power. Um, he does get on base. Um, he can take his walks. He hits for average. And, you know, and it, we've had a big debate on, amongst our staff whether he hits two or three. And I'm, I always say, well, you know, he hit leadoff force because one, he's either going to, you know, drive a ball or um, get on base. And more importantly, I always tell people like, you only hit in the two hole really once. It's to start the game. After that, it's just kind of revolving time of how our guys get on base. So right now I have him in a two hole to start our season, just because you know if our if our leadoff guy isn't on base, well then you know he's got a high percentage of getting on base and and he he can run for a big guy. You know I for, you know we never never really ran him in a sixty yard dash you know in in the first two years here because being a pitcher I was like I don't want to pull his hamstring running a sixty when he's going to pitch and play the outfield. So we didn't do it as freshman and sophomore year. And so scout day this past year, uh, guys were asking me, like, what do you think he'll run? I was like ah, about six seven, and he comes out and runs a six four. So um he, he can run when he wants to um for a big guy and and he really covers a lot of ground in center field so he's, he's an elite defender um and his hand-eye coordination is is, is is really really high level and more importantly you know when he does hit he can hit for power so i think those are kind of the tools that kind of makes him sets, sets him apart from some other guys in the sense of you know he, what he can do dynamically on the field
1: lot of tools at his disposal and he hit 386 in a, a shortened sample size for you in 2021 what are you expecting him to improve upon or work at in 2022 even though he is coming off an incredibly productive first two seasons with you is there any aspect of his game that either you look for him to improve upon or he is looking to work on himself
0: I think the biggest thing, we joke around about this all the time with him, but, um, you know, his short game is pretty solid. And so you know, I told him, I said, hey, if, if every once in a while that third baseman, they do the shift on you or whatever, they're playing back, don't be afraid, you know, to, take, to drop one down just to show that you can do it in, a, in an unexpected way. Um, so he's worked hard on that. Uh, you know, and, and more importantly, probably the other part is his middle game. You know, just try not to get frustrated when people do pitch around him. And then more importantly, understanding, just go and continue to take your walks. You know, I know that's something a lot of power guys and a lot of really good hitters struggle with in their junior years. They start to swing swing the pitches out of the zone and, and get themselves out by not taking the walks. And so that's been one of the things I've told them. I was like, hey, just keep continue to take your walks, to continue to get on base, and, um, you know, good things will happen. So, you know, our goal as an offense is to, is to score runs. So, you know, you know obviously – yeah, he hits a home run, he's going to score runs, he gets on base, and we knock him in, then we score runs. So the goal is still the same.
1: And from the outside, there's certainly a lot of chatter about him being a great draft prospect. I know he was named to the Golden Spikes preseason watch list. How has he handled the kind of pressure that comes with being discussed as a potential first-round pick? Has he taken it in stride, or, and has he allowed it to, uh, to seep in at all, or does he just go about and do his business?
0: He's very humble. Um, he lives in the moment. Uh, I think the last two years has kind of cr- made him create that mindset, um, and, and he knows how to handle some inv- adversity. I mean, not a lot of people know he went like a one for twenty-three in the Cape to start out his Cape Cod year, and ended up hitting two eighty-nine. So, you know, that that just kind of sums him up right there. Of like, hey, live in the moment and don't worry about you know you know the past. And I think he's he's, he's done that and, and developed that. You know, he really came on the scene this summer after um, summer of twenty twenty. We had a the Rockingham County League still played baseball here in, in in the Harrisonburg area. It's probably one of the oldest uh, summer men's leagues, what, basically what it is. And they had college players from all over the country come play in this league. And you know, we couldn't go out and watch games, but our local news covered it. And there were some home runs he hit that was, with wood. I'm like, wow, that's pretty impressive. You know, uh, him hitting home runs with wood, and you'd hear about it, you know, through the through the community and stuff like that. But um, they did cover a lot of his games, and, I, and his numbers were ridiculous in that league, but there were a lot of college players in that league um, because, of, because of the pandemic. And so, yeah, it, that was kind of when I first realized with, he was doing it with Wood and then obviously doing it again in the Cape just really kind of set me to say, hey, not only is he going to be on a high on-base percentage guy, but he also can hit for average and power.
1: And he's a special talent as well. And the highest drafted player in James Madison history was just a 10th-round pick. We're still a ways away from the draft itself, but do you believe that he could top that? And do you believe he could be a a first-round pick when the draft comes around?
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, I do. I think he's got all the all the tangibles um, that you want, mentality-wise as well as tools-wise, and 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 more. And and like he's a grounded, he's a grounded. uh, I wouldn't say I'm not gonna say kid because he's an adult now, but he's pretty grounded. and, And like I said, he lives in the moment, and you know, he just takes it with stride. You know, some of the things I I was really impressed with how he handled all the publicity in the fall and and then now obviously going into the spring I, I yesterday it was it was a high of a whopping 38 and we we're inner squad and you know we had you know four or five scouts in the stands watching a, a inner squad at 38 degrees i started laughing i was like i don't think i've ever seen that in all my 25 years of of coaching where scouts are going to come watch a kid play in, in 35 38 degrees but they were there and uh and you know he just had a lot of, he's had a lot of a lot of eyes on him since uh, since the fall
1: well, we wish you guys success and we wish Chase success as well. Thanks so much, Coach Eikenberry, for hopping on and discussing Chase DeLaura. We really appreciate your time.
0: I appreciate you guys. Thank you.